0: Do you have questions about dog training? Do you have a question about your dog? How to help your dog do something or not do something? Would you like some suggestions for some great toys for your dog? Some fun things you could do with your dog? Some awesome classes you can take with your dog? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you should go ahead and book a free consult with a School for the Dogs trainer, a School for the Dogs certified professional trainer is waiting to take your call. You can go ahead and book a free virtual dog training session now at schoolforthedogs.com slash free consult. My name is Annie Grossman, and I'm a dog trainer. I'm the owner and co-founder of School for the Dogs, a dog training center located in Manhattan's East Village.
1: For the dogs, for the dogs. School, school for the dogs.
0: For the dogs. On this podcast, I talk about dog training, interview industry experts, discuss pet trends, answer questions, and try to communicate my love for all things related to behavioral science. Thanks a lot for listening. I think this podcast will help make you the best possible human best friend any dog could ask for. Hello, Beth. Thank you for being here. Maybe you can just go ahead and introduce yourself because I'm worried I'm going to say your last name wrong. (laughs) And and tell me uh, the name of your business and where you're located.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, everybody worries about saying my last name. I am Beth Berkobian of Rehab Your Rescue. We're located in Dallas, Texas, but I do sessions virtually all over the world. I have some clients in South Africa, in London, in Seattle, so we are very accessible. Um, we, I have a master's degree in animal behavior from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I'm certified in separation anxiety, and I have over 25 years experience. And then I have three members on my team that just do basics, uh, cooperative care and reactivity and such like that. But I specialize in aggression and the aggressive dog, specifically the rescue dog that has problems. And
0: which leads to the the name of your business.
2: (laughs) Yes, that is actually, Um, I was supporting a rescue. And when I decided to go full time again after... a like eight-year break, I was like, oh, I need a new business name. And I'm like, well, all I do is rescue. So I was like, oh, rehab your rescue. And it stuck, and it, it's kind of driven me along the rescue world. So it's really nice.
0: So tell me how you got started in, in this world.
2: So I grew up on a farm in Wisconsin. We had Semitol cattle, quarter horses, and my dad actually trained field trial Labradors. And he used diversives. And we'd bring out these bouncy labs. And they were so fun. And at the beginning of our sessions, it was just such a joy to work with them. But then I'd always notice at the end of the sessions, we'd have these shut down kids who were like slinking back to their kennels. And I was like, that just, it felt wrong being a 12-year-old. It just didn't feel right. Can you explain a little bit what the aversives were that were being used? Yeah. So this was in the 1980s. So like we had one of those leather collars that actually had nails in them like three little nails and if the dogs did something they didn't like my dad would make a big leash correction um we used e-collars which of course in the 1980s weren't great um he used a bonker so just like jeff Gelman, he would be whacking on these dogs like if they wouldn't release oh my god so i just discovered guy. i just discovered jeff Gelman. <laughs> Oh, I'm so sorry that you've gone all this
0: time without knowing who he was. No, I'm glad I went all this time. <laughs> I know, I know, and now you do know. Go back to the darkness. <laughs> well, maybe we could talk about him. But anyway, what, what is a bonker?
2: So, a bonker is a something like a rolled up towel, or my dad would use a retrieving dummy, and essentially would just whack the dog with it when they didn't do what was expected of them, um, and a lot of the compulsive trainers will use it if a dog is overreacting or aggressing or being reactive and they'll throw it at them to hit in the head or on the hips. Um, it's supposed to break the mindset. Um, really all it does is shut the dog down and causes the dog to be fearful of the handler. Cause they know for sure who it's coming from.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and so, you know, if they weren't fetching correctly or they wouldn't release a bird, they'd get a bonk on the head mm-hmm. or hip and, mm-hmm. Yeah, it made him drop the bird or made him drop the retrieval, but it it didn't teach them anything, right? It just taught yeah. them that we were unpredictable and now we're scared of you.
0: Uh, so how did, how did you go from thinking, mm, this makes me a little uncomfortable, to
2: where you are now? I decided that I should I wanted to be a veterinarian as a kid which I think most kids that are really animal crazy are like oh I want to be a veterinarian yeah I did so too I, just- I
0: think I knew I couldn't um like deal with the dead dogs and also not good at science and felt also like if you like animals the only job out there is being a vet
2: right yeah like especially in like the 1980s mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about dog trading. And there wasn't pet dog training. It seems like it is now.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Right. So I went to school Mm -hmm. and um, we did this day where you could go into surgeries and you could watch surgeries happening. And I promptly passed out. Wait, this was was, what? in, In vet school? Yeah, before. So right when I joined for my undergrad, you could go and watch like surgeries happening and they kind of had this open house day. So you were like
0: pre-vet or pre-med?
2: Yes. Yep. Was going to be pre-vet. And yep. Nope. Passed right out. (laughs) So I was like, okay, well, I can't deal with blood or guts, which was interesting because I grew up on a farm and had dealt with, you know, doctoring animals my whole life. But yet seeing the insides of an animal is completely different. Mm -hmm. And I just... I passed out. So I was like, yeah, we're not doing that. Um, so I changed tracks and I was like, well, I think I'll be a human psychologist. So I started taking uh, or I got my undergrad in behavioral psych for people. And at the end of my undergrad and I was going to move on to um, a getting, an, uh, getting a master's in psych for people, it just didn't feel right. And I wasn't, I was very Young And I was very bold and I was very opinionated. And so I would get very frustrated with people when they wouldn't put their behavior plan in place when I was doing my clinicals. So a professor very gently steered me (laughs) towards... Zoology, And so I got a master's degree in zoology with an emphasis on animal behavior. Yeah, I'd be less frustrated with animals that if I went towards an animal track that I wasn't very skilled with dealing with people and I would get very impatient with them. Which as, you know, now that I'm in my 40s, this entire job is people. <laughs> so... Um, but I spent the first 10 years of my career just doing board and trains for a company. And so I was very isolated from them because I think they did understand I didn't have very good people skills. Um, so I had to learn how to people because I wasn't very good at it. And I I was one of those people who's like, I hate people. And now I don't think that's a bad badge of honor.
0: Yeah, it's uh, interesting. And really- it's certainly a stereotype about people who work with dogs, right?
2: Yes, for sure. I've heard that all the time. Like, I really don't like people, so I'm going to be a dog trainer. And I'm like, well, then go where you never have to talk to a person because that's all I do all day long is talk to people and empathize with them and feel with them. And I have to have this level of understanding of how they're feeling because especially in behavior, it's a journey that we're taking together where they're going to feel so terribly isolated and so terribly alone. And I have to be their guide. And I have to be the one who is taking them on this journey. And if I'm not supportive of them, who is going to be? So I learned that, but it took me 40 years to do that. <laughs> well, I
0: find there's, I I mean, business owner to business owner, I can tell you that I find working in a service business to be such a trial by fire, as far as uh, working with people goes, um, yes. that working in 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 my previous career, in school, in life, and, and relationships in general, uh, I never had to deal with so many people wanting so many things, um, both on the client end and on the employee end. Um, yes. And, and uh, it definitely teaches you, I, don't, I mean, I feel like it's been quite an edu- education in psychology, both mine and others. <laughs>
2: yes for sure.
0: I think some people probably could go their whole life without having uh if you aren't if you aren't if you live I guess a more cloistered life or or even don't go into the service business because you it's just the volume of people that you are dealing with on both sides becomes um huge and you start to see um I don't know like behavioral tendencies and um and I don't know like uh, personality types. Um, and I mean, one thing I've learned, um, I, I mean, I, and I, I love working with clients um, and I love working with trainers, but it's not, it's certainly not easy. Um, and it's a different, well, behavior. And I've talked a little bit on the podcast about this before, like trying to figure out how to run a business based on what I've learned about behavior from dog be like working in the realm of dog behavior <laughs> like sure there are a lot of things that overlap um as far as you know why people do what they do or don't do what they don't do and what motivates people but it's like a whole different skill set uh, right for know, sure that yeah. i that i appreciate like the world of human relations in a way that i i never did before becoming a dog trainer anyway sorry to go down that
2: <laughs> that's <tension, laughs> no,
0: interesting to me that you were like um you went to work with you went into the world of working with animals because you were not so interested in working with the people, but now you're saying you're working with the people. Do you think what you, what you learned about animal training first as a zoologist helped inform how you work with people?
2: Yes. And I think also having that behavior psych degree helps. So it all kind of feeds together because it's all linked. It's all behavior. It's all functional. Um, So we always, have to look at what what is the function of that behavior that either a human or an animal is doing um, and why are they doing it and then once you dig into that you can find your empathy and you can find the way to address it in a non-confrontational or non-aversive way uh, it did take me as I think it does most people time to develop skills to deal with people appropriately and I also have an MBA in finance and spent 15 years, as a corporate controller in the in corporate America, so that also lent me, and I worked for uh, the fire service side for five years, and so working with firefighters and corporate America that taught me quite a bit as well of how to really learn how to listen to people and not be reactive because I was a very reactive youngster. So it really taught me quite a bit coming up. And then I put a pause in 2008. I put a pause on my dog training career because of the economy and, you know, I just wasn't in the right place in my life. And then in 2020, well, in 20. 17, I started back into the dog training world with supporting rescues and, you know, really that's all I did was for a few years, just support rescues. Um, As their behavior consultant, I'd take cases that they were having problems with, but I wouldn't really see the outside uh, client. And then in 2020, when COVID hit and I was working in oil and gas, I was absolutely miserable and I hated my job. I hated what I was doing, but I was working part time as a behavior consultant, and I was seeing probably 20 clients a week on top of my corporate job. And then one day I just woke up and I went, looked at my husband and said, I think I'm going to quit my job on Monday. And he's like, okay, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I'm going to go back to dog training full time. And he was like, okay, (laughs) in the middle of COVID. (laughs) And he's a retired firefighter paramedic and he was um, working the pandemic in an uh, emergency department. And I uh was like, I just I can't do this anymore. I, I don't I don't want to be in corporate America. I feel awful, I'm miserable, I'm depressed, um, I just don't want to. And he's like, Okay, well, we all let's give it a college try for three to six months. And if you aren't successful, you can always just go back to corporate America. Sound like a deal. And I was like, sounds like a plan. And now two year two and a half years later, we are thriving i'm growing my team and it's just it's been an exceptional ride in the last two and a half years since i've gone back full-time it's been quite the exceptional ride so
0: just chrono- chronologically you were training full-time
2: and then you left 2001 to 2008 i was training full-time and when was that with your started. own your own business or a board and train nope. the board and train business in wisconsin And that was aversive based. So it was prong collars and not as heavy handed as like what my dad was doing. And it was right as I had graduated college. Um, And so actually it was before that. It was before I graduated from college, because when I graduated from college, I uh, shifted to uh, positive reinforcement 1.0, you know, where when positive reinforcement first kind of came out, everybody was still kind of using mild aversives like shaker cans and score bottles and so i still use those types of things and every once in a while a prong collar would appear but um mostly from 2001 or two on i stopped with the majority of the aversives at least the prong collars e-collars choke chains uh, but the first company i worked for was very much a um, compulsive slash balance company um when I left them after I got my degree, cause I was working part-time while I was getting my education, I uh, started working for another company that all I did was board and trains. How did you,
0: how did you come to feel that um, the balanced method was not the direction
2: you wanted to go in? Oh, that's a really good question. I wrecked one of my own dogs. So I just told this story on TikTok the other day, um, I was trying to get a UDX, a utility dog excellence on my Rottweiler, and he was really lagging in his heel. Like his heel, just his off leash heel was not polished enough. And I kept DQing in the healing portions. And the judges just kept telling me that I needed to firm up the heel. It needed to be more polished. It wasn't crisp enough. And so I had a friend and colleague talk me into trying her trainer. And that we should try an e collar, and I was like, "Okay, let's do it." And she's like, showed me her dog that he had polished up, and it was this goofy lab who was still a goofy lab because labs are resilient. And she he, she was doing amazing with this dog, and I was like, "Okay, well, it'll work for Elmo. Let's let's try it on Elmo." And we took, I think, we took about three to six months to get the dog. Conditioned to the e collar and we moved really slowly and then we started working in the training center on rubber mats with go ahead was this um after that after 2008 so i came out of the program and was starting to make my transition away from using tools and i had really never used an e-collar in the program i was working with the first company i worked for um we just used prong collars and choke chains. We didn't use knee collar. And I, I got convinced that this was the way to go by a friend. And because she showed me her dog. And I was like, well, okay. And we started working him in the training facility, which had rubber floors. And it took about 30 minutes. And all of a sudden, I started to notice that he was just shutting down and shutting down and shutting down. So he was like, he came into the training facility, this really happy, goofy guy. And he was a really exuberant, outgoing Dude, and he he all of a sudden started like tucking his little nubbin in, and then his ears were plastered against his head, and he had low slinky body language. And when I would ask him to heal, he would plaster himself against my thigh, which was exactly what I wanted, but not in the way that looked like a polished heel. He was slammed against me with you know low slinky body language, uh, wide eyes, panting mouth. And I, I can remember distinctly the way he looked, and I was like, "That doesn't look great." And they kept telling me, like, "I was like, hey, I, this doesn't look like it's doing what I want it to do." He's look, he looks unhappy. And the trainer and my friend were like, "Oh no, no, no! Just the first time's always a little rough. It'll get better. It'll get better." So we left after that session, and I came back, and like two weeks later, and the second he stepped on the rubber mats, he pissed and shit himself and Uh, he started shaking and he just was like he he started slinking to the ground and he started belly crawling and I was like oh well that's not great and he's like just put the e-collar on we have to work through this and I'm like yeah I don't that doesn't feel good in my stomach like I don't think that's right and so I took him outside and I got him uh, I didn't put the collar on and I took him outside and I got him all jazzed up and boistered up and and he recovered probably about 80 percent and I was like okay let's do this. And we walked back into the training center. His feet, his feet hit the rubber mat and he went, uh-uh. And he shut right back down again, peed himself again. And I was like, oh no. And both um, my friend and the trainer were like, this is normal. And I'm like, is it though? And I then that's when I was like, this is not normal. And I have wrecked my dog and this is not great. And I could never get him back onto rubber mats again. We tried to um, counter-condition it and desensitize it back and I could never get him to walk on rubber mats again I could get him into training facilities and tool around but if there were rubber mats he wasn't it. he wasn't having it oh. um, he could play on them but if I tried to put him to work he would shut down um, and I, I took about five years to try to get him together and unfortunately I wasn't able to recover that from him so I made a very stupid mistake. I was still very young. I was 25, 26. And I just really wanted, I really wanted this title. And I was very competitive. I showed um, at the top of the quarter horse circuit and, you know, won some big prizes there. And I was a very competitive young girl. And I was just more about winning the prize than I was about the well-being of my dog. And that is what taught me to worry more about my dog and less about myself. And that's when I took tools off and I stopped using them from that moment forward. Um, And I've never picked up any color again. How
0: did you go from there to also sort of doing away with things that people might consider
2: less severe, like coins in a can? Yeah, that took a little bit longer. Yeah, that took a little bit longer because that was still very much the norm in the late, the early 90s early 2000s like that was how quote unquote how we were training right and so I remember when I got my first English setter puppy I used a shaker can on him and it shut him and I think it was for barking um and it just like he hit the deck and belly crawled away from me and I was like oh that's not great and I think that was the first time I had seen that and I was like okay and so I stopped I think I've, i my poor dogs have been, <laughs> I think for most of us have been experiments in what not to do. And so I think I've tried things on my own dogs and then gone, Ooh, that's not great. Let's not do it on your dog either. Um, and then it was, then I started getting even, you know, con- taking continuing education and learning and, you know, reading, don't shoot the dog and, um, of course, continuing to read Dr. McConnell's books. And you just keep educating yourself. And I just kept seeing things would be like, you'd, you'd be in a class and there'd be dogs barking and you'd squirt one and they would like hit the deck and be like, oh, and you'd be like, well, that's not the response I want. I don't want the dogs to be afraid of me. We want the dogs to figure out how to act instead, instead of being just terrified all the time. So I, I think a lot of it's trial by fire for most of us, even with educations, we have to figure out what works and what doesn't work. And like with my new setter puppy, it's about figuring out what works for him and mm-hmm. what doesn't work. Um, but yeah, it took a long time to come away from reversives. I would say when I ended, so probably about 2005 is when I really set all of them down when I was like, okay, there was a better way. I had you know continued to learn, continued to go to seminars and such. I was like, okay, there's a better way that we can just redirect and we can ask dogs to do something else instead of trying to scare them into submission.
0: Here's a question. I have family that uses a shock collar or they've used several kinds of shock collars on their dogs and continue to. And um, their rationale of why it's okay is that the dog only ever got shocked once and and it wasn't that bad so if it means that the dog can have free roam of their yard it was worth it what would you (laughs) i'm not putting you on the spot how would you respond to to yeah and i i get that that a lot right
2: yeah 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 and i think we get that a lot um for well one we don't get to decide what's that bad right just because you as a human think, oh, it's not that bad. And I think the the biggest fault flaw we have with the e-collar is that all trainers will have you try it on the heel of your hand. That is the most callous part of your body. And they won't tell you that human skin is 14 to 18 cells thick and dog skin is four to eight cells thick. So we're not comparing apples to apples, right? And so what I've said to clients lately, because I get a lot of clients that come in on e-collars and I'll be like, okay, I want to give you a challenge. Go home with no shoes on. I want you to strap it to your inner thigh and just wander around and give it to your partner or a friend or child and have them stim you when you least expect it. And then tell me if it's painful. And then tell me if it, if it made you jump. Because the reason the e-collars work is because it's versus, because it's painful. And what they learn is that when that collar is on, like I have one client who I have not pulled the e-collar off of yet because it's a very big, um, very big, very strong, very reactive German Shepherd, and I want her to have tools um, before I take her other tools away. We will take them away, um, and I've told her I said you can you can wear it because the dog is what we call collar wise. So the dog knows when that collar's on, there is a chance that I'm going to get stamped. Even if he's only been stemmed once, there is a chance they know they're very smart, and so for that, this particular dog, I'm like, just leave the collar on. You, I know you never use the box; let's not hit the button, and then we'll we'll move away from that e-collar. And and so really, it's more about the learning history that the dog has has um, has been through, and that single learning events are very real. So if that dog was booking towards a towards the road, and you stemmed him. And they hit the brakes and came back. You're like, "Yep, that worked," and I've never had to hit it again. And I'm like, yeah, because they don't want to get hurt again, and they've learned that that collar is painful. And I think the good balance trainers will tell you, "Yeah, it works because it's painful. It's not a tickle. It's not an interrupter. It's not a communication device. It's 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 aversive and it's painful." And I think as long as we're honest with ourselves, if that if you're okay with causing a sentiment being pain, so that you have control over them, then go for it. But let's be honest with ourselves, what we're doing to our animals, not that, oh, it's just so they can have freedom. They have no more freedom on that e-collar than they would on a long line.
0: So what do you say when someone says, well, it just snaps them out of it?
2: Yeah, it doesn't though. It it causes pain and then they associate that pain with whatever is happening. So if we use it for aggression, uh, and I always like to bring up this point, I always tell my clients too, go home, open your owner's manual and read the very first page and tell me what it says. And then they'll always come back the next day or the next time you see them and say, it says not to use for aggression. And I'm like, I know. Crazy, <laughs> huh? <laughs> That's why I wanted you to look there. Don't use for aggression and don't use for punishment. So then if we're not using it for aggression, we're not using it for punishment, what should we be using these tools for? Um, and and most be using training- it, if
0: you're not using it for punishment, you're not using it for aggression, you should be using it on humans who are into S&M. <laughs> yes there we go <laughs> right that's my- some animal for whom this is going to be a, a, something that's positively reinforcing
2: <laughs> and can consent to it right so that it, if I can consent to having a violet wand use, used on me then which is the electric device that is used in SM, and um, not that I know anything about that oh boy did we just go down a path <laughs> um So if I can consent to a violet wand, that's completely different. That's me saying, yes, please use that. And then I can also say, whoa, 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 that's too much and tap out, right? Whereas Mm -hmm. we don't give dogs and they don't have the ability to tap out. And I've even seen trainers that have fried dogs on e-collars and they are screaming and they're holding that button down and saying, well, when they stop screaming, I'll let it up. Essentially that dog is saying, you've gone too far, stop, and we're still not listening. So if we're going to use those devices, we have to listen carefully to what the dog is saying and and watch for that consent.
0: I try and make the point that we don't know what associations the dog is making. So your dog gets shocked while running towards that UPS truck. And for all we know, the UPS truck is the thing that's been associated with the pain.
2: Right. Right. Or I had a a dog that had separation anxiety, went off to a board and train, they put the dog in an impact kennel, and every time she barked, they fried her on the e-collar until she stopped barking and started screaming. When the dog came home, and the dog was a lovely, sociable dog, and when the dog came home, she was now human aggressive. So she associated that stim with people that were not her family. And Mm. so she, we've been... I think we're nine months into a program now trying to work through the human aggression, but she is very suspicious of humans and will bark, lunge, growl, um, show big displays of aggression um, towards humans that are not her family. And it has been a long road to um, counter condition that.
1: Mm.
2: Yep. Are
0: you familiar with the monks of New Skeet?
2: Oh, yes. Who isn't? <laughs> Well, I guess if you didn't know Jeff Gelman, then maybe
0: Well, the months of these may have been around since since I was a yes. little kid and their um their latest book is about using a shock collar. Uh and uh if I had it nearby, I would read to you from it, but I do recall one of the t- things they talk about is that the vibration is actually more disturbing and painful to the dog than the shock and mm-hmm. um which I don't I don't think we
2: get to decide that. We don't don't get to decide that.
0: Right. And I don't know. Maybe I wonder if there have been studies that have been done on that. Um, I don't know. But then they also talk about um uh testing it on yourself and the different levels of what's painful and how it's like might like one level might be more painful for one person than another, um, which made me ask myself, well, if you could say that, then how can you also say that it's not that bad on the dog? Like you don't, if you don't know how you're, you know, if I don't know how my spouse feels wearing this thing, how can I expect to guess what it feels like to the dog?
2: Right. Um, And, And that's exactly it. Like, why do you get to say, so you don't get to tell me what I find unpleasant. So why do you get to tell me what my dog find, finds or doesn't find unpleasant? And what one dog may find unpleasant, another dog isn't going to. And so I do a lot of deaf and blind dogs. Um, I've had several of my own deaf and blind dogs. And I have used the vibe collar very sparingly and only if the dog can tolerate it. And the way I start a vibe collar is, you know, I'll put it near them. And if they have a, and, 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 Vibrate it, and if the dog has a big response to that, then clearly that's that's going to be aversive to them, and we're not going to be able to use that on them. Um, so the dog gets to decide. So yeah, if the if I put a vibe collar on the dog and the dog has a oh holy crap response, then we're not going to use it. Mm-hmm. and just like with the stim so it should be the same way with the stim that if we put it on and we're why do we have to find a working level shouldn't it just be that if we put the collar on and we stim the dog and the dog comes apart we go oh okay we're not using that collar then if you want to use a a remote
0: tool why not use something that makes a sound that if you're right it's really if it's really about you know breaking your dog's attention or i forget the other ways people put it but um,
2: Communicating—if
0: it, if it, if it's really about communicating or just getting their attention—why not just use a collar that can make a, a simple sound? Um, right.
2: So I—I what, I, what oh, you go ahead. Sorry, I'm just going to add one thing to that. And what drives me crazy about this whole argument about e collars is that—and really, e collars, prong collars, choke chains—and the the comparison to. Um, positive only quote unquote or force free or or r plus which positive only isn't a thing um is that well we don't want to use treats all the time i I don't want to have to carry treats i don't want treats in my pockets i don't want to have to use treats but you're okay with leaving that that device on a hundred percent of the time and telling your client never take that collar off but yet you're not okay with them using treats Because you don't want to have that be a crutch. Isn't your tool the same thing? Isn't your tool crutch? Because in my line of work, we fade treats. Like we get to a point where we're not feeding every repetition. So I want that same thing. I want to be away from the tools. And I eventually want, if I have the dog on a head halter or a harness, I want the dog away from that and on a flat collar at some point. So we should be striving to be fading everything away and not being like, we can't use streets, but that collar, that's what that's gold, and you can leave that on all the time. And so I think it's such an interesting dichotomy, the argument that we have.
0: Would you mind going into about Jeff Gilman with me? Because I really just discovered him like a week ago. And can you explain who he is or how you came to know about him and when? Because I I I, I guess my my ire has so long been focused on Caesar Milan that yeah <laughs> that I did not know about this uh, this person who by the way is not as influential overall as Caesar Milan but um, but uh, but and and nefarious although I would say maybe differently nefarious but but you go ahead
2: yeah I think he has a different reach um, he's not on national television which is a blessing. Um, so I, I think the good part about Jeff is that we don't have, he's not on national TV. Um, Jeff is, I think I heard about him probably about 10 years ago. And for his famous bonking method, um, which is where he takes a rolled up newspaper. And if the dog is doing something aggressive, he whacks them with it, whether that's over the head or um on the hips. It's usually over the head. And then he's like, see, it stopped it. And I'm like, yeah, because if you hit me in the face with something too, I'd stop. Um, and he says that he takes really aggressive code red dogs and, and fixes them, which I think is problematic because A, we shouldn't be seeking to fix a dog. Um, we should be seeking to repair their behaviors. And some dogs are not fixable so i think that becomes very problematic in another conversation um uh, but he is he's not just Or right, sorry sorry, to,
0: sorry i would i i think if i were i would say not to edit you but i would say yeah. less it's less about being fixable as far as like some dogs just aren't ever going to be right for the environment that we're asking right
2: dog. yes yes
0: Without, without great without great accommodations. But yeah, go, go ahead. Correct,
2: correct. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, that's why we have mental facilities yeah. and prisons. Um, so but I you think know, Jeff this? is, compu- mm-hmm.
0: go ahead. No, yeah,
2: he's a compulsion trainer. Oh yeah, he's compulsive 100%. Uh, and he doesn't just use aversives, he uses abusive methods. Like he is hitting dogs to get them to stop what they're doing. Um, I've watched... I will go down these rabbit holes sometimes for emotional cutting and to be like, Oh, thank God I don't do that. And to make myself mad. And I've watched quite a few of his videos and it just boggles my mind. Like, how do you not understand basic learning theory? And that this is not how dogs learn. And that when a dog is in distress, you're not going to get them out of it by hitting them with something and shutting them down. Sure, it snaps them out of it. Absolutely. But it doesn't, it's not teaching them anything. Just like if yeah. your kid was drawing on the on the wall right now with a permanent marker and I threw a book at him, he's not gonna learn not to draw on the wall. He's gonna turn around and go, whoo, that Beth is scary, and I don't <laughs> want her in my house. And then next time I come over, he's gonna be like, Mom, why is Beth here? Because I'm I'm now unpredictable. So I
0: I I got to Jeff Gelman um, because um, I'm actually writing a book right now about Ooh. good dog training, and um, it's it's not at all a, a memoir, but I was writing a little bit about sort of how I first I, I I was writing a little bit about like what dog training was to me when I was a kid, and. Right. Um, and a lot of what I learned uh, from my dad as a kid uh, were methods that um, that I think he learned from Barbara Woodhouse, who was on the BBC in the early '80s. She was like this very matronly, stern uh, old lady who um, who was going around yanking dogs' leashes and stepping on their leashes to get them to yes, lie down. Yes. And, and just doing a lot of um, – but she also, she also uh, suggested things a lot of the time that were just kind of um, – I don't know, just like weird things that I remember my dad doing. I didn't make this connection until after my dad died, so I can't talk to him about it, unfortunately. But I remember he would say like, uh, what a good girl, that it was really important to um, – Use that W sound to communicate with dogs, and subsequently, I I saw that on her show, on you know reruns of her show, like that's something she suggests. So, and my dad, I also remember used to say that um, uh, if the dog was bad, I should bite the dog's ear. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, oh, I wonder if he got that from Barbara Woodhouse. So I googled, and so and I, it's kind of hard to find clips of. Barbara Woodhouse's show, but, or, you know, cer- certainly searchable clips, but I guess I Googled like Barbara Woodhouse bite dog ear <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Maybe there was some clip of her doing that, and that's how my dad learned about dog training. I mean, it, right. part of the irony of it all is my dad was an extremely uh, gentle, kind, generous person. So that he was, um, that he believed that all of this was fine says something about how much people will believe about gobbledygook (laughs) right right and uh, snake oil Um, he was also a really smart man anyway so I got to this blog post on a website called animal rights and wrongs dot uk and it was called just when you thought the woodhouse days were over um and it's uh it's uh, a very interesting blog post by um this guy John Brooklyn about um how we got from the nineteen eighties, nineteen seventies Barbara Woodhouse days uh to this guy, um Jeff Gelman. And then he he shows this video which um I was just like, whoa. Can I can I share it with you? It's- yeah, absolutely.
2: Oh, back to the Brittany that
1: grabs kids. Kids could just be sitting on chair and we'll walk by and bite feet. Okay. I, I think so it's so like a QA go, a a of somebody. some so kind. What you need to do is you get a gotcha. little power on that dog. That dog walks by kids and tries to bite on bite their feet. You you let that dog know that's not acceptable. We're not living like this.
0: Oh, I, sorry, just to pause that. I also like googling him a little bit. It looks like I couldn't figure out any education that he has. Um None. any certification, all the only previous experience I could find was that he he ran a sex shop
2: at some point <laughs> oh awesome I think that, was, that is very means you should be a dog trader some it's like the guy meaning. we have here. yeah um
0: yeah. and then I looked at the people working for him hoping that they would have some sort of experience or certification or something and also couldn't but anyway I'll continue playing this I think it's Excellent a QA. One. it's him and a woman I, I think know. his wife okay um with a bunch of dog paintings behind them and he's this like uh, ner- kind of nerdy looking guy with glasses and a receding hairline and long hair draped over his shoulders I'm trying to give a visual description of but button down skirt <laughs> um kind of i mean almost kind of like a young a young possibly less attractive bernie sanders with long hair that's what i would yes I would describe.
1: Yep. <laughs> that's what you do thank you for giving put it in the context so that's what you do. And some people would be like, oh, my God, it's going to think kids. It's going to think kids are what? It's going to think kids are hot? I hope so. I hope when it sees kids', kids feet, it moves away. That's what I hope it does. But a lot of people are going to say, oh, then it'll have a negative association with children. And what? Bite them? It's already biting them. I don't create bad behaviors. I, I fix them. I know that sounds a little bit corny, but I think it's really, really important because a lot of people come in after the fact and say, no, that'll make the dog. I'm like, no, 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 You know, Boston mommy called me up on the phone and said, hey, Jeff, I'm having a problem with my dog. Hey, Boston mommy, what's going on? My dog goes by kids and bites their feet. Okay, wonderful. Have I ever met the dog before? No, you haven't, Jeff. Have we ever talked on the phone before? No, you haven't, Jeff. Have you ever done any of my advice before? Nope, Jeff, I haven't. Great. And the dog is still doing the bad behavior. I had nothing to do with it. I think it's so important that people understand the sequence of a dog's bad behavior that dog trainers like myself aren't creating them at all. But there's a whole segment of the marketplace out there that are trying to convince you that no, punishment makes all these dogs behave bad. We show up after the scene of, at the scene of the crime. Got it? We show up at the scene of the crime. All we do is stop unwanted behaviors all day long, once the dog has done them. It's so important that people understand that and that they stop getting sucked into this punishment makes dogs lose trust in your fucking Boston mommy. If that was my dog, I already don't trust my dog. I don't trust it. If my dog was biting kids' feet, there already is a lack of trust that's already done. This is so important that people understand these concepts. This is simple common sense. But as soon as you start talking about punishment, everybody crumbles and falls apart and screams abuse. Abuse? Give me a fucking break. How about those kids that are getting bit? It's incredible the way that, the, 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 that we've gotten in this country. You have to fucking be kidding me. That dog is biting children's feet? What would you like to do? What should we do? Drop kibble on the fucking floor? Oh yeah, every time the Britney walks by the kids, drop kibble on the floor so it'll think the kids' feet are nice. Yeah, let's also wash the kids' feet with like essential oils and tea tree oil and put flowers in their fucking toes so the dog feels it's a loving fucking place and maybe they'll sit there and kumbaya too. Give me a fucking break. The dog's biting the kid's feet. It's going to be told right now, this second, how unacceptable this is. That's why dogs are dying. That's why dogs are being rehomed. That's why children are getting bits. Because we've turned into a society of a bunch of snowflakes who refuse to accept reality. And on that note, Linda's done with the show. That's why she keeps squeezing my arm. Is that what you meant? No, I was trying to make you calm oh. down. I'm like, calm your shit down, dude. I'm not mad either. <laughs> I'm not angry. He's just passionate. I'm fucking passionate, TM. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right? I'm not mad at all. I love life. I'm having a great time. But boy, am I sick and tired of 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 people making all these excuses. This isn't Boston Mommy. Boston mommy knows that because she's been on the show. These are just like to, to the... To you, to all of you, maybe not the people sitting here, but to like to people out there that are struggling. I mean, it's really getting bad out there, and it's getting worse. We've get had too many snowflakes. We're gonna have a fucking snowstorm. We got a snowstorm. We're gonna be shoveling shit for a long time, guys. I mean, that's gonna be the bodies of dead dogs.
2: Oh my god. <gasps> Ugh. It's the, for me, it's the fear mongering. It's the, well, your dog's gonna die if you don't use knee collar. Your dog's gonna die if you don't use knee collar. Uh, okay, stop that. Okay. So I have a client that uh, is having severe separation anxiety, severe reactivity, and has been to five balance trainers, and it's not getting better. It's just, it's getting worse. And we were supposed to start a program, and the dog bit another dog and did some, some damage. And so she has to remove the dog from a, from her house. Uh, the apartment's kicking the dog out. So I, she goes, so she calls me and we, we do a session and she says, well, I'm going to go to this trainer. And I'm like, again, it's a balance trainer that's going to use the same methods. And she's like, yep. She told me it was going to, it was gonna be the same thing. I was like, great. Well, then I talked to this trainer and I was like, yeah, it's the same methods because they make these, Promises and they're so passionate, like like Jeff is, and I'm assuming because you're recording him with f bombs, you're okay with us using f bombs. It's fucking bullshit. <laughs> like it's basic learning theory. Like yes, so if you stim a dog or you punish a dog around that kid, they, he's just going to be like, oh my god, that kid's so unpredictable, and now I just want to keep distance. I want to create more distance from the kid because what is aggression? It's a distance creating behavior. So, like, ah, and what did he say it was? Wait, did he say the dog was an Aussie? No, a Brittany. a Brittany. A Brittany. So, Brittany's, like, if it was an Aussie, I'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, the kids, we just need to fulfill the dog's biological needs of hurting. And that's why he's fighting the heels and ankles, is because it, it's that's his behavior. That's what he does. A Brittany. If a Brittany is biting a child and my specialty is, is the bird dog, like I, that's, that's my jam. That's what I do. I have two setters in my home right now. I have probably 30 bird dogs of varying breeds in my program, GSPs, Britneys, German Wire Hair Pointers, um, Fisalus. I love the bird dog. Britneys are such sensitive animals. So if a Brittany is biting a child, I want to find out the function. W-T-F. And not what the fuck, what the function. Why is the dog biting that child's feet? What has happened to cause that dog biting the dog's feet? And let's put some management in place. So if the dog is biting the kid's feet, the dog doesn't go near the kids until we can start a program. And not a punishment-based one. Because you're just going to make that kid or that dog think that kid's are unpredictable and scary. And it's not going to just be going after your child. It's going to start going after everyone else's kids. And it's going to be a death sentence. Absolutely right, Jeff. You're going to put that dog to death because you are the one that's telling people to punish when it comes to kids. And does suppression work? Sometimes. Does it backfire? Most of the time. Most of the time. If we try suppression, See, he was fired up, and now I'm fired up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, well, you can't not be fired up. I mean, I, I, think I go, I go towards the my my brain just goes to management first. Like, yes, if, if you have a dog who's biting a kid's feet, like we control so much about our dogs' lives. You know, yes. it's like this dollhouse version of the world where where we're controlling the so many of the inputs. And and the physical environment where the dog is spending yes. his, his or her time. And if we have that much control, you know, whether it's with a leash or a gate, a fence, a muzzle, or just, you know, hey, don't bring your kids over. Or, <laughs> I mean, yeah. If we have all so much control, why should a dog be uh, biting the kid's feet to begin with? Um but you know what also strikes me is that um, the sort of like where I think the way things are going in this country attitude of it, um, yeah. like sent a shiver through my spine because I felt like it's it's this, um, you know, liberals versus conservatives um, kind of, you know, red state, blue state caricature yeah. of, of the world. Um as seen through uh, what to many people seems like a super niche area, dog training, right? Yeah.
2: yeah. It's it's so interesting that if we want to address dogs behavior with empathy and compassion and management and not punishment, then we're snowflakes and we're positive only cupcakes that don't understand that dogs have real life consequences. Uh, no, we understand. We just don't choose. We just choose not to use, punishment we choose to use science based method, science based methods that work so yeah you're right i'm not going to put any collar on a dog and jack him to high heaven until he's afraid of children i'm going to get to the core of what is happening i'm going to address the emotion not the behavior fuck the behavior let's work on the emotion first and see what we get then and when we get the emotion the behavior follows yeah, I don't like growling either, but I'm not going to shut it down because I want my dog to tell me what they're feeling, especially towards a child. Like, why? Uh. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I love that we're snowflakes because we we don't want to use punishment. But let's let's be real. Positive reinforcement isn't permissive. We just find a way to work through the behavior without punishing it punishing it it doesn't mean that we're not going to let a dog run into traffic it doesn't mean that if dogs are getting into fights we're going to let them just duke it out until one's dead it means that we are going to do what we need to do to get those dogs apart and to keep them safe but we are not going to intentionally inflict pain in a behavior program
0: i was just um reading a book by um donna Haraway. Uh, it's called, uh, I remember what it's called the companion species manifesto dogs, people, and significant otherness. And in it, she, uh, writes, um, pretty extensively and in a very interesting way about Susan Garrett, uh, who is certainly a hero, um, of many positive reinforcement dog trainers and, um, it, especially in the agility world, she talks about uh, Susan Garrett's training style. Uh, she describes it as positive bondage. It and it made me think also of um, of how Walden Two, B.F. Skinner's novel, which is kind of like as if dog trainers ran the world, um, a dog a dog trainer's utopia of how government should be, um, was described as uh, fascism without tears. Um, goes back to though this idea of like just because we're you know we believe we should be working in the you know quadrant of positive reinforcement doesn't mean that um anything goes well this has been a super interesting conversation and yeah and i think with the gelman with the gelman stuff my my first thought was like what about management my second thought was um have you ever read anything about operant conditioning and classical conditioning.
2: <laughs> and- right. I mean, that might be helpful. Like there's a big guy here who his degree is in marketing. And one day he quit his job and became a dog trainer and his rates are, he's proud of himself. Like I am just stunned. And because, so in this goat now, we could probably go off on another tangent. He's a handsome man. And so Everybody believes him and I will get, I've gotten so many clients from him that are like, well, we tried him because he was just so charismatic. I'm like, how'd that work out for you? Like, how can, I hate that we are an unregulated industry. There isn't another industry that I can think of. Cars, hair, makeup, law, restaurants. Everyone has to have a license and we don't. We're not regulated and we have... Sentient beings, living animals, lives in our hands, and anybody living animals me.
0: that could that could kill, yes, yes, and maim and do, yep. yep. I think where Gelman and uh, uh, Caesar Milan differ in my brain is um, like I kind of feel like there's what I call good dog training. And then there's sort of all the other stuff, which is, you know, aversive t- training, e-collar training, uh, you know, balance training, um, dog whisper type training. But the dog whisper, um, uh, I don't know, circle in that Venn diagram, it's not only um, just kind of poorly educated on punishment and conditioning, it's also filled with all this... Um, uh what i generally think of as snake oil um and and also you know sort of what you might call myths about um pack theory and dominance uh which is touches into other areas of bad dog training too but it's but it, what really drives me crazy about <laughs> the dog whisperer is the the I don't know like the, the, the last episode I saw of the last this most recent season like the woman was holding her dog with her hand over the dog's back and like this little dog and he was like well clearly that's your issue your the hand should be held on under the dog not over the dog because I can't even remember his rationale um but it was like huh <laughs> it's like saying like the issue is like your dog has a blue collar on rather than a black collar like it just
2: yes and and the the rationale of like so many of these balance trainers are like well it's your energy that is causing it and uh 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 i know plenty of people that have reactive dogs and that are calm cool cu- as cool as cucumbers standing out there while their dog is lunging, barking and reacting like fools on the end of the leash. And their energy is the human's energy is perfectly fine. We do not cause behavior problems. Humans do not cause behavior problems. Can we just, can we just agree that that is a thing? Yeah. And,
0: and what's interesting about, about blaming the human is that I think, um, it relates to some of the, you know, in that, in that video, um, he talks about like, you know, rub essential oils on your feet or, you know, like, Ugh. like he, he's seeing snake oil as, you know, the reductive practice of dropping kibble at a dog while they're, you know, going after a kid's foot or something. Right. Um, where uh, I see it in the, you know, these other ways, get the dog to never let the dog walk through the, the door before you feed your dog, you know. Oh, Yeah. You know, eat your dog's food before you feed your own dog, or whatever. Um, right. Uh, like I see all of that stuff as as um, the the woo, and um, and I think there's a lot of that though in the. Um, actually, I just listened to this podcast called um, "The Dream," and the first season is about MLMs, like multi level marketing, and the second season is about. Um, is about like the whole world of wellness, and one thing that both of those, um, one thing I, I this pot these two seasons of this podcast made me think about was how often people are blamed for failure that is mm-hmm. in a situation where they're set up to fail, like in multi-level marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, chances are you are you know going to fail. But if you do, you're told, you know, you didn't try hard enough. You don't have a winner's yep. mindset. Um, and similarly with a lot of um, things in the world of of
2: wellness. Um, yeah, it's so common. Like I'll, I will get people that are coming from balance trainers, you know, and I've gotten people that have come from other uh, Force Free or R Plus or Lima trainers who they're like, it, hey, they just, they didn't, j- they didn't drive or they just didn't work out. You know, it's, there's multiple reasons why people leave trainers, but a lot of the reasons I'll get is like, I got one the other day who was like, my dog is aggressing it at humans. And so we put an e-collar on and we stim when he, when he's barking at humans and it's not working anymore. It worked for a while, but it's not working anymore. So then I called the trainer and I said, Hey, it's not working. Can we come to a session They came out, did a session and said, well, you're not doing it right. It's how you're doing it. It's your fault. And I'm like, well, maybe like Sometimes it's implementation of the plan, right? But whenever I I often hear, I get told that it was my fault, that I wasn't calm enough. I didn't do enough exercise. I didn't um, turn it up high enough. I didn't do it correctly. So I think we often, and I think it is very much our society, is that, well, if it doesn't work, we'll just blame someone else because it didn't work. Um, Or we'll blame the client because it didn't work. Well, no, we have to figure out why it didn't work or why it's not working and how we can adjust that. Because if it has stopped working, then we have to find something else to do. Because the definition of insanity is trying the same thing over and over and over again and expecting different results. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk. What an interesting conversation. I know it took quite a different path, I think, than we intended it to go in, but that's okay. Thank you
0: for hate watching Jeff Gellman with me.
2: It was easier than doing it
0: on my own. Do I need need to watch more or do you think I've had enough?
2: I think you've had enough. I don't think you need to watch anymore. (laughs) We're just the the pretty snowflakes. (laughs) That's right. And I'm okay with that. I'm good with being a snowflake.
0: (laughs) You can learn more about Beth at RehabYourRescue.com She's also on Instagram at RehabYourRescue Shortly after talking to Beth I was thumbing through a book called The Kohler Method of Dog Training by William Kohler He was uh, a popular trainer This book was written in 1977 and he doesn't talk about shot collars, but he does suggest Uh, some pretty extreme forms of punishment for example if a dog chews some siding off of your house he suggests taking a big piece of siding putting it in your dog's mouth and then taping the dog's mouth closed until he has learned his lesson if you come home and find your dog has dug a hole he says fill the hole Brimful of water with the training collar and leash, bring the dog to the hole and shove his nose mm-hmm. into the water. Hold him there until he is sure he's drowning. If your dog is of any size, you may get all of the action of a cowboy bulldogging a steer. Stay with it. I've had elderly ladies who'd had their fill of ruined flower beds. Dunk some mighty big dogs. A great many dogs will associate this horrible experience with the hole they dug. However, to make sure of a permanent impression, fill the hole with water and repeat the experience the next day, whether the dog digs any more or not. On the third day, let him watch you dig a hole and prepare it for a dunking. Class surveys have shown that more than 70% of the dogs who experience this correction for as many as six consecutive days swear off hole digging. If the master takes the first sign of repentance as a permanent change and stops the dunking after only a couple of days, failure is generally the result. Anyway, um, the thing that I noted more than uh, uh, his um, interesting methods um, was the way he echoes this idea of um of uh, people being snowflakes if they're not willing to use punitive methods he calls them wincers this is from lesson one fables and foibles of his book dog training it's a section where he's talking about dealing with people who think your methods might be too harsh because you, in influencing your dog to be happy, composed, and well-behaved in public places, must do some of your final polishing and distracting situations open to scrutiny. It is inevitable that you be bothered by overly sensitive spectators. It is important that you be equipped to deal with these eyebrow archers and deal with them you must, lest you be confused by their protests and weakened in your purpose of thoroughly training your dog. The super observers are quote-unquote kindly people, most of whom take after a kindly parent or an aunt who quote had a dog that was almost human and understood every word that was said without being trained. They range over most of the civilized world. Generally, one or more will be found close to where dogs are being worked. They often operate individually but inflict their greatest cruelties When amalgamated into societies, they easily recognize each other by their smiles, which are as dried syrup on yesterday's pancakes. Their most noticeable habits are wincing when dogs are effectually corrected and smiling approvingly at each other when a dozen ineffective corrections seem only to fire a dog's maniacal attempts to hurl his anatomy within reach of another dog that could maim him in one brief skirmish. Their common calls are, quote, I couldn't do that, I couldn't do that, and, oh my, oh my, they have no mating call. This is easily understood. When bothered by such critical observations, you will find the most effective counter-irritant to be a proffered leash and a loud invitation such as, here, show me. If the dog appears a bit formidable, the wincer is certain to hurry away. Better still, let's use the initiative of a good general and hit the source of the misinformation which they would use to discredit your efforts. Take a look at some of the things that have been written in books and magazines. A really good look. This experience not only will prepare you for evaluating the comments and suggestions that come from the sidelines, but also will give you confidence of action necessary for training a dog. magazines have dignified the prattle of quote-unquote dog psychologists who would rob the dog of a birthright that he has in common with all of god's creatures the right to the consequences of his own action there will always be more emphasis and clarity to be had in the contrast between punishment and reward than from the technique of quote-unquote only good and if they obey quote-unquote still more good and there is more meaning and awareness of living in a life that knows the consequences of both favorable and unfavorable action. So let's not deprive the dog of his privilege of experiencing the consequences of both right and wrong. One of my favorite things to do with dogs is to watch them figure out how to problem solve. I like watching them figure out how to navigate the world that we're asking them to live in, and to have fun while doing it. At School for the Dogs, we specialize in selling enrichment toys for dogs. These are also sometimes called work to eat toys. They can help a dog refine their problem solving abilities, can help them burn off physical and mental energy in a way that is not destructive. It can help slow down their eating, and it can also just help them enjoy themselves. I kind of think puzzle toys might be the canine equivalent of playing Fortnite or doing the crossword. School for the Dogs' new Brainy Box is a monthly subscription box where every month we will send you one of our favorite canine enrichment toys along with one of our favorite types of treats. We'll only receive things that have been vigorously tested by our staff and student body. Sign up today at schoolforthedogs.com slash Brainy Box for a limited time, You can get 15% off your first month or your payment for the full first year when you use the code BRAINYBOX15. Thank you so much for listening. And special thanks to Bill and Lizzie of Toast Garden for the amazing theme song. You can find Toast Garden at youtube.com slash toastgarden. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping at storeforthedogs.com and you can learn more about us at schoolforthedogs.com. You can also connect with other listeners by downloading our brand new app, Just visit schoolforthedogs.com slash community.